Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Sorry about the uh, mic issue. I thought about coming up here and letting Dave just talk into my face, but I didn't want to do that. So uh, we just did it old school style, how the church has always done it without uh, magnification. Well, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 7. My name is Zach, one of the uh, pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. And uh, we're going to be working here through 1 John 3, 7 through 10 this morning. Uh, if I, I've recognized recently having two young kids that little kids do things that adults would never do, okay? So for example, a little kid will come and just sneeze on your face. My little daughter will come up and she'll be like, hi, daddy, Achoo! but you would never do that as an adult. You would never be like on a date and thinking, you know what, I really like that dress and just sneeze all over your date, okay? Little kids additionally will just throw up. That's what they do. As an adult, you kind of feel it coming on and you feel sick and you go to the restroom or whatever, but a little kid will just be playing and throw up. And I thought, how weird would that be if we still did that as adults? Like we're in some sort of business meeting and we're like, well, the second quarter numbers are looking just all over the table, okay? That's how it would be. Uh, I have to tell my daughter at least twice a week, no, no, sweetie, we don't put food in our eyes, okay? Not nose or ears, that's understandable, but her eyes, okay? And little babies, what's so weird is when they're tired and they start to wake up, instead of being calm and actually going to sleep and not being tired, they will start screaming at the top of their lungs as if that's going to help with the sleeping process. Now imagine that I'm there in bed with my wife and it's two in the morning and I start to kind of wrestle and all of a sudden I'm like, and I start screaming and she's screaming and she's crying and I'm crying. It would be super weird. We, we have a tendency not to take on these attributes and these characteristics of our kids, but it is not the case in reverse. Little kids absolutely have a tendency to take on aspects of their parents. Do they not? I guarantee you, you stub your toe and you say a curse word and your kid will say that curse word probably at Thanksgiving in front of all your friends and family, Okay. Or if you have a guy, let's say he's from, uh, I don't know, South Alabama, and he has a real strong Southern accent, what do you think his kid's going to sound like? Every time his kid talks, it's going to sound like he's giving an interview after a NASCAR race, every time, right? Now, this text is going to say something similar to us. It's going to say, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? If you actually belong to God, you walk a certain way. If you actually belong to the devil, you walk another way. I don't title sermons, but if I did, I would title this one, Who's Your Daddy, okay? Because that's really what this text is going to deal with. Now, before we get into the text, I need to be very, very clear on something. We've already talked about this, but I want to say it again. When the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God, and it says that we are children of God, it does not at all mean the same thing. There is one and only one God. The Bible's extremely clear on this. There are no gods beside him. There are no, none before him, none after them. There's only one God. And yet somehow Jesus is that one God, yet the son of the father, okay? That he is eternally the son. When the Bible says that we are children of God, it only means by adoption. We are just humans. We will only ever be humans. We are made out of the dirt. And what God does is he adopts us, but we are just humans. So we need to understand what we mean by this sonship language. If you didn't already know that theology, though, this text makes it really clear because it talks about those who are sons of the devil. Does that mean like the devil's in the maternity ward just giving birth to people? No, it's an image, right? If you follow the devil like the Pharisees, they're called sons of their father, the devil. Whereas if instead you follow the eternal God, then you are a son or daughter of God. So let's pray and then we will get into this text. Almighty God, we thank you for this text and I pray that you would guide us. I pray that where we would, uh, we would be convicted, where we need to be convicted, but I pray that we would be so encouraged where we need to be encouraged. I pray that you would bring people to repentance here today, this morning, 
And I pray for those that are already saved that they would be encouraged in the knowledge of the gospel. We love you and thank you. We wanna ask it all in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's look at verses seven through 8a. That's the first part of verse eight. It says this, little children, let no one deceive you. Now I wanna pause right there real quick. We've seen this several times throughout 1 John where he calls them little children. And he's doing this not to be pejorative, not to be uh, talking down to them. This is a term of endearment. John is kind of like this grandfatherly figure in the faith. He's this apostle, and so what he's doing is he is calling them little children because he's a pastor. He's appealing to them, and he says, let no one deceive you, okay? Let me ask you this question, a little pop quiz for the church. Does the Bible allow us to judge people? It actually does, okay? When the Bible forbids judging, what it forbids is hypocritical judging. It forbids judging with pride, like where you have a log in your eye and you're looking for the speck in somebody else's. The Bible will tell us, though, to be discerning, to judge people by their fruits, to judge those within the church. And here, John is saying that we need to judge. Specifically, we need to know whether or not someone is a false teacher or someone is teaching incorrect doctrine. What he's doing is he's writing to this church where there have been false teachers and he's saying, little children, don't let anyone deceive you. If they're preaching a new version of Jesus, they're preaching a new gospel, they're preaching uh, some sort of idea that though you're a Christian, you can walk in unrepentant sin, you need to watch out for them. And then he's going to give the qualifiers here for what that is. Let's keep looking. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever practices, makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Okay, let's do a little, a little Greek here. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew and then parts in Aramaic and like Daniel and Ezra. The New Testament's written in what's called Koine Greek, and here's what you need to know. The word practice doesn't actually occur in this text, okay? The word practice does not occur in Greek. It literally just says, the one doing the righteousness and the one doing the sinning, okay? That's literally what it says here in this text. Why have your translators interpreted this, though, as practice? And here's the reason. They're trying to show that there's something continual about this. They're trying to show that this is a lifestyle, Do we all agree that lost people sin? Yes. Do we all agree that Christians sin? Yes. What is the difference then between the two? And so the reason that your translators have added the word practice is to help illumine this for us, to help make it clearer for us. Here are the difference between the way a Christian sins and a non-Christian sins. When a Christian sins, there's repentance, they fight their sin, and they have a different heart posture. Those are the three things. There's repentance, they fight their sin, and they have a different heart posture. When a Christian sins, they repent. There's sorrow, there's conviction. They don't want to walk in those sins. When a Christian sins, there's fighting it. You, as a Christian, never get to give yourself over to your sin. You never get to do that. What you get to do is you get to fight it. And will you fail? Yes. Will you stumble? Yes. Can God deliver you from certain sins and you never struggle with them again? Yes. Are there some sins you will struggle with the rest of your life? Yes. But you never get to give yourself over to sin. You go down swinging, you fight sin. The third one's heart posture. When the Christian sins, for that moment, we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten the gospel in that moment, and we say, this sin will bring me the highest pleasure, okay? But we quickly realize that's not true. The gospel brings the highest pleasure. Whereas when a lost person sins, none of those three things are true. There's not repentance. They might feel bad that they got caught. They might feel guilty or something like this with worldly sorrow, but there's not true repentance, There's also not fighting it typically. There's just kind of this promise to do better and then they fall into it again. And there's not a heart posture that actually loves God. There's just a heart posture that mainly loves self. 
What this text is simply saying is that one's actions show what one really is. So let me say this. This is very, very important that you understand this. Your actions do not save you. Your actions show whether or not you've already been saved by grace alone. Your actions are evidence of what you are. They are not the thing that actually makes you righteous. That's only the gospel, okay? One's actions show what one really is. So let me give you some statements you might hear people say that are actually contradictions to what the Bible would say. I can be a Christian, but I live with my girlfriend. I can be a Christian and also live a lifestyle of homosexuality. I'm a Christian and my entire life is focused on my personal success. How about that one? That's a big idol I don't think we talk about, that most of us are living our own lives for our own self-exaltation. I want more money, a bigger house, more influence, more name. I want to maximize myself and maximize my talents in a sinful way. I'm a Christian, but I'm trusting in my personal holiness to help make me more savable, okay? We all realize biblically that you're not saved by your works. You cannot do anything to earn salvation. It is a gift as you simply trust Christ But I think what a lot of us do is post-conversion, we just try to make ourselves more savable. We forget that we need mercy through and through. I'm a Christian, but only God can judge me, et cetera, et cetera. We have all these kind of statements that we hear in our culture, in church or whatever, and they're just contradictions. What they're saying is, I belong to God, but my actions show that I hate God. Those two things don't get to go together. All this uh, text is saying is the same thing that was said in Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I said wolves correctly. I usually say wolves because I'm from the country as well. So I didn't say wolves this time. I said wolves. That's a win for me. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Notice, getting good fruit is not what makes you a good tree. Being a good tree is what naturally produces good fruit. You can't mix those up. It's not that I will do these good things and I will be saved. It's that I'm saved by God's sheer mercy and therefore I do these things. There was a guy one time, At a church where I used to work, there was a guy that was under church discipline, and uh, he was cheating on his wife, and he had filed for divorce when he didn't have biblical grounds. And so I decided to reach out to him to try to confront him in his sin and invited him to get lunch like an idiot, okay? If you ever have to rebuke somebody for having a mistress, you do that in your office, okay? You don't do that uh, at a restaurant. But we sat down at this restaurant, and he says, before you get started, I just want you to know this. I know what I'm doing is sin. I know the church's position on it. I know what the Bible says, but I don't care, and nothing you say is gonna change my mind. And I thought, this is gonna be a terrible lunch, okay? I didn't know what to do after that. I was like, do you you want some of my fries? I had no idea. And so he said, but I'm not worried about it, though, because I know God will forgive me. And so I looked at him and I said, no, he won't. He said, what do you mean God won't forgive you? Do you not think that God can forgive adultery? I said, oh, absolutely. Let Let me be clear. God absolutely forgives adultery. God absolutely forgives unbiblical divorce. There is no sin that you can commit that God cannot forgive. I absolutely agree. I said, I, I, and I said to him, I didn't say God doesn't forgive adultery. I said, he won't forgive you. That's what I said. He said, why? And I said, because you're not a Christian. Everybody that you mention in our church that also struggles with the same thing, there's repentance. There's fighting sin. There's a different heart posture. I said, I didn't say God can't forgive those who've committed these sins. He absolutely does. Look at King David, the murderer adulterer king, Okay. And yet, I won't forgive you. Why? Because you're not actually a Christian. God only forgives Christians. He only forgives those who are repentant. He only forgives the elect. 
And the point I was trying to make to him is you don't get to say, I'm just going to live with my mistress, but I'm still saved. Because your actions show whether or not you love Christ. What you're saying is you hate Christ. That's what you're saying by your actions. Look at verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now listen to this. This is very offensive, but this is what the Bible is going to say. You are not neutral. There is no neutral. You either belong to the historic, biblical, orthodox view of Jesus, or you belong to the devil. There is no middle ground, okay? There is no being a moral atheist. There is no just being a kind Buddhist or a kind agnostic or something like that. This text is saying there is no gray. There is no middle ground. You either belong to Christ or you belong to the devil, and everybody fits into one of those categories. Now, that's shocking because that's not what we have a tendency to think when we think of someone belonging to the devil. When we think of somebody belonging to the devil, we think of somebody who's like involved in Wicca or like witchcraft. Or I saw this uh, on social media a few weeks ago. It caused kind of a stir. There was a guy who's an actual Satan worshiper, like he goes to the church of Satan, and he tweeted out a picture from his wedding day. I don't know what it's like to get married in the church of Satan, but here was the picture of his wedding day. His wife was wearing a black dress instead of a white dress. She was carrying dead roses instead of roses. Very creepy. The minister, if you can call him that, was wearing an all-black suit and a bright red pocket square. He looked like he owned a vape shop, okay? And so I'm looking at this, and this guy said, he said, I'm so thankful for four years of unholy matrimony, Ava Satana, which is Hail Satan in Latin, okay? That's what he said. Now, a few things about this picture. One, what was so ironic to me is that God's law is so written on the human heart that even a Satan worshiper recognizes that marriage is good, recognizes fidelity is good, and has worship well up in his heart, although he directs it towards the wrong object, okay? That's how we have a tendency, though, to see someone who belongs to Satan, somebody who's a Satan worshiper. No, 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 no. This text is saying something much stronger than that. Listen, the Bible says that we are by nature children of wrath, that we by nature belong to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil, okay? That's the devil, Hell and belonging to the devil is the default for everyone who is born, not the other way around. We are not born morally good. We are not born morally neutral. We are born belonging to the devil and we are born broken and sinful, okay? Your only hope is that you can be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. That is what this contrast is meant to be, that if you are not a Christian, you're not neutral, you actively belong to the devil to oppose Christ to oppose the gospel is to do the work of Satan. When, when Peter tells Jesus he doesn't have to die on a cross, what does he say? Get behind me what? Satan. 1 John five nineteen. We know that we, that's Christians, are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John eight forty four. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Matthew 13, 38, the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. John 13, 2, during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. You either belong to Christ or you're actively opposing him whether you know it or not. This is a strong text. This is a strong text. Now look again at the uh, end there of verse eight. It says this, or 8a. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The focus here is that the devil continuously sins. He sinned in rebelling against God. He sinned in tricking Adam and Eve. And even today, he sins. Here's what he's saying. 
when you're walking in continuous, unrepentant, hard, hard, not righteousness kind of sin, not a Christian who's fighting sin, not a Christian who is still has a presence of sin in your life, that's all of us, but when you're not doing that, he's saying you're doing the same thing as your father. That's what he's saying. In the same way as that little kid from South Alabama sounds just like his dad, so those walking in unrighteousness are not merely neutral but belonging to the devil. Let me read you an interesting passage. You might have never read this passage before. There are two really strong passages in the Old Testament that talk about the fall of the devil. One is in Isaiah 14. I want to read to you, though, one from Ezekiel 28, 13 through 17. This is a prophecy that is spoken originally against the king of Tyre. Okay, Tyre's just, the king of Tyre is just a human. But the language that's being used here is too strong for just this king. It's going to say that he was an angel in the Garden of Eden. That's not about the king of Tyre. Okay, listen to what it says. It's talking about the devil. You were in Eden, the garden of God, on that day that you were created. They were prepared. You were an anointing guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And you sinned, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Here's what Ezekiel is saying. Dear king of Tyre, when you walk in unrighteousness, you remind me of somebody else. You remind me of somebody else who walks in unrighteousness. And that is the exact same thing that this text is saying here in 1 John, okay? In 1 John. Everyone belongs to one of these two kingdoms. You're born into the kingdom of darkness. You must be adopted into the kingdom of light. Those are the only two options, period, okay? Now, here's some good news. Here's some good news. Let's look at 8b, second half there of verse 8. It says this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He is the serpent crusher. In Genesis 3.15, there's this hope that one will come who will crush the serpent's head, and here you have the serpent crusher. We actually have a family at our church, and when they disciple their kids, that's what they call Jesus, the serpent crusher, okay? And here this text tells us why did Jesus have to come down and become a man? Why did the one who was eternal, who's always been the son of God, he's never, he was never created, he never started being the son of God, he is eternal, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, he's always existed. How did the, why did this one come down? as a man while remaining God? Why is it that we celebrate Christmas? It's not because Jesus wanted just to show us how to live. Yes, we are to emulate him, but that's not the primary reason that he came. The primary reason he came was not to tell us all hippie style how we should love one another, which involves not rebuking people somehow. He did not come to make us feel better about ourselves, all Oprah style. He did not come as a mere philosopher to give us a new way of thinking he did not come to enact state-sponsored social justice. Let me tell you why Jesus came. This is very important that you get. He came to crush Satan. He came to destroy his enemies. He came to set humanity free. That is why Christ came. Last week, when Jeff taught, the text said that Christ came to forgive us of our sins. Those two go together. Because we're sinners, we belong to the devil. So when our debt is paid, we, have to know, we get to no longer belong to the devil, but we get to be free. Let me read you some passages that say explicitly why Jesus came. Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness, notice you start in darkness, to light, and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, okay? Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Matthew 20.28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen to this next one. Matthew 9.13, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. If you're saying to yourself, Zach, I want to be a Christian. I just feel like I'm such a big sinner. Take heart because Jesus died for big sinners. He died for real sinners, not just these little nicky nacky sins. He died for real sinners. Colossians 2, 14 through 15, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And then John 3.17. We all know John 3.16. Listen to John 3.17 as an encouragement. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ is on a rescue mission. We already start condemned. He's not come to bring condemnation. He's come to bring salvation. Salvation. And what that does is when he brings that salvation, when that stranglehold over you of sin is broken and that stranglehold of the devil owning you is broken, then you are finally free listen to how I say this, to walk in righteousness. We we think that sin is freedom, the ability to do whatever we want, okay? That's not true freedom. Sin owns us. We're slaves to it before Christ, and so what's true freedom is actually walking in righteousness. Let me give you an example. Let's say that I had to go to prison, okay, for, I don't know, selling illegal weapons. That sounds like something I would do. That sounds like something that I would go to prison for. So I go to prison for selling illegal weapons, and uh, it would be awful, okay, I don't know if you know this or not, but prison's not as much fun as you would think, okay? The company is awful. The mattresses are flat and uncomfortable. The food is awful. And because I'm kind of a smart aleck, I don't think that things would go well for me. Someone would be like, "Uh, where do I bring this to? And I'm like, actually, sir, the phrase is to where shall I? And then I just get stabbed, okay? And at the autopsy, the doctors say something like, it was a record number of stabs, something like that, okay? That's what prison would be like. Now, imagine you go to prison for 10 years, the food is awful, you don't get to see your family, you don't get to see your friends, you only get one hour of recreation a day, et cetera, and then I finally get released from prison. Do I say, yes, now I am free to go sell some more illegal weapons? No, 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 no. You see, prison was the slavery. Prison was the bad part. I'm now free to not have to do that. That's how it is with your sin. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. God has freedom and he cannot sin, okay? Freedom is the ability to do what is right. It is the ability to walk in righteousness and we don't have that ability apart from Christ. Verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Okay, I want you to see a few things in verse nine. First of all, I want you to see that the second phrase, for God's seed abides in him, is the cause of the first. It's not that we walk in righteousness and then God says, okay, you're righteous. It doesn't work that way. In salvation, a sinner comes before an infinite holy God and says, I need mercy. I cannot earn it. I cannot do it good enough. My righteous deeds are not as righteous as you ask. My sinful deeds are really sinful. Would you forgive me because the eternal Christ has died on my behalf and God gives us salvation. And the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of our hearts so then we walk in righteousness. It's not, Christianity is not if I do this, I'll be loved. It's that I'm loved, therefore I do this. Therefore I walk in this 
righteousness, okay? When it says seed here, that's a reference to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, okay? One of the questions I get asked a lot as a pastor is this question. Zach, can a Christian be demon-possessed? I get asked that question a lot for some reason. I especially get asked that question a lot around Halloween time, okay? I guess what happens are people watch some sort of scary movie and they're thinking, I want nothing to do with that. And so they're like, Zach, can I be demon-possessed? Listen, if you are a Christian, you can be attacked by a demon, you can be spiritually oppressed, but you cannot be possessed if we're defining possessed as having your will overcome, okay? Do you know why? Because you're already possessed by the Spirit. You're already possessed by God himself. So therefore, you, the, the Holy Spirit will not have another residence with him, okay? Now, the reason the idea of demon possession is scary is because we don't like this idea of this thing outside of us controlling us, making us do bad things. But listen to this good news. If the thing controlling you is rather the spirit, then he is causing you to walk in righteousness, that he's causing you to walk in good things. All of your salvation, all of your sanctification is just by the spirit. He's the one that does the stuff, okay? He's the one that does the stuff. Yes, God gives you justification by grace alone, amen, Yes, we are to read the Bible. Yes, we are to pray. Yes, we are to take communion. God has given us means of grace whereby we can walk in holiness. Yes and amen. But the active agent in that is not you. The active agent in that is the Spirit. Because He dwells within you, because the Father and the Son send the Spirit to dwell in our hearts, therefore we walk in righteousness. Okay? We walk in righteousness. Now look at this phrase again, because this one is very stressful. It stressed me out all week. It'll probably stress you out a little bit. Listen to what verse nine says. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Okay, that makes sense. Now look at this next phrase here. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In Greek, this literally says he does not have the power to keep on sinning. What do we do with that? Here's what this text just said. Not just that a Christian doesn't typically sin, it says that it is impossible for a Christian to sin. That's what this text is saying. That it is impossible for a Christian to sin. How should we understand that? Because we walk in sin all the time. Can't be impossible for a Christian to sin. Watch this. I just thought of a bitter thought towards somebody. There it is. There's a sin right there. I'm not going to point out who it was, but I thought of a bitter thought just then. See, it's very easy for us to sin. Why does this text say that it is impossible for us to sin? Here is the answer, okay? You have to understand this. Context is everything. Let me give you an example of this. If I write a letter, and we've used this example before, if I write a letter to my doctor and I say, doctor, my heart hurts and I think I might die, and I write a love letter to my wife and I say, I miss you so much, my heart hurts and I think I might die, Notice that the words are exactly the same. If you just try to take them literally and pull them out of context, then you can't tell the difference. It is the, it is the overarching genre, the overarching context, which helps make this clear. This text is not saying, forget everything else you know about the Bible, forget everything else you know about 1 John, and the fact that John has already said, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. It's not saying forget all of that. It's saying this. It's saying there are only two kinds of people. The question John is addressing is not this, do Christians sin? That's not the question he's dealing with. Just like my doctor's not asking about me loving my wife and my wife's not asking about the physical condition of my heart. John's not asking the question, do Christians sin? Here's what he's saying, to whom do you belong? There are only two options. You always have to ask yourself when you're reading the Bible two things. What does the rest of the Bible say about this? And here's a big one, what is the point of this text, okay? 
When, uh, when Jesus tells us to gouge out our eye and cut off our hand to deal with sin, does that mean we're supposed to all look like pirates? No, what's the point? Do whatever you have to to deal with sin. When, uh, when Paul says pray without ceasing, does that mean literally without ceasing? Like don't ever go to sleep, don't ever preach a sermon, don't ever, do, don't ever talk to anybody because you're praying without ceasing? No, what's his point? Be in prayer all the time, okay? Let prayer be a constant part of your life. In the same way, all John is trying to do is he's trying to say there are people that follow God and there are people that follow the devil. Those are the only two options. He's not trying to give you an entire theology of sin just with these few verses, okay? All verse nine is trying to say is simply this. Your actions don't make you righteous. They show what you already are. Your actions don't make you righteous. They show what you already are. Let me tell you a weird story that I learned about recently. There is a uh, famous artist. He's a shock artist. And uh, that means he makes these very aggressive paintings and uh, political statements and all that kind of stuff. His name is Marco Evaristi. And he is famous for making weird art. So one time he traveled around with paramedics and took blood from a bunch of different people. Not here in the U.S. They wouldn't allow that. But in another country, took blood from all these people and then used the blood to make art. Okay? This is not the kind of guy you want to hang out with. You'd be like in his house, leaning up against the wall, and you'd be like, where's that red paint come from? That's not who you want to be around, okay? Another time, he made a spaghetti and meatball dinner for his friends, but the meatballs on the spaghetti were taken from his own fat. He liposuctioned them, made those into meatballs, and then had that dinner. I told you, you don't want to be his friend, okay? He's a weird guy. His most famous experiment, though, was he took 10 blenders, and he put it at an art exhibit, 10 blenders, filled them each full of water and put a live goldfish in each one. And then he just allowed people to do whatever they wanted. And he said that what was interesting about the experiment is it showed what was already in the heart of people. He said, on the one hand, you have what he called the sadist, the person that likes causing pain, the person that can't run up there, that just can't wait to run up there and push the button, okay? Have a little fish smoothie. There was the moralist who said, this is obscene, we cannot do this. They would, they would fight back. There'd be people that would stand in front of the blender so no one would push it. And then there was the third category, what he called the voyeurist, the person who liked watching the battle between the moralist and the sadist, okay? That's, by the way, that's where I would be. The whole time I'd be like eating popcorn, like, oh, he's gonna push that button. That's, how, that's where I'm at, okay? Now, the point of his experiment, because he took a lot of flack for this, it caused quite a stir, pun intended. Uh, he caught a lot of flack for this, but his point was to show that the experiment didn't make those people that way. The experiment showed what was already in them. The person that was already violent wanted to push the button. The, per- the person that was already restrained didn't want to. The person that already liked watching the battle liked watching the battle. That's really exactly what this text is saying. Your actions don't make you righteous. They show whether or not you've been transformed. They show whether or not you've really trusted the gospel, okay? That's the point that John is making there. Let's look at verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, okay? Let me give you a great quote by New Testament scholar Karen Jobes. She says this, What we do reveals who we are regardless of what we say we are. The implicit questions confronting John readers is, who's your daddy? There it is, so good. Are you of God or are you of the devil? Those are the only two options there. Now, what evidence does this text give you that you're a Christian? What are the two things that it gives you at the end of this passage? It gives you, do you obey God and do you love other Christians? Notice that. Do you love God and do you love 
others. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like that's anywhere else maybe in the New Testament? Yes, right? The greatest command is to love God. The second greatest command is to love others. John is saying the same thing, but you need to know these two things go together. It's not one or the other. It's not like if, if, I, if you're wanting to lose weight and I say to you to lose weight, you, can, you should exercise and you should eat well. You can do just one of those and still lose weight. You cannot change your diet, start running every day and you'll lose weight. Or conversely, you cannot run and you can eat better and you'll lose weight, okay? You can do one or the other. That's not how this text is functioning. This text is not saying you can do one or the other. You can be somebody who walks in holiness but doesn't love other people, doesn't care about other people, doesn't wanna be around community, doesn't wanna disciple people. Conversely, you can't be somebody who just wants to care for people but doesn't love God. These two things go together, okay? It's not one or the other, it's both. It's not like the example I gave of losing weight. Rather, it's like this example. Uh, You guys might not know this, but in my spare time, I'm a shooting instructor, okay? So when I'm not teaching people to turn the other cheek, I'm teaching them how to kill more efficiently, okay? That's what I do on my, uh, my days off. And one of the things I teach our license to carry classes, to get your license, you have to complete a written portion of the test and a shooting portion of the test. It's not one or the other, okay? It's not one or the other. There are people that fail the written portion and they don't know the laws and so they should not be able to carry. There are other people when it comes to the shooting portion, they they crush the written portion. When it comes to the shooting portion, they're doing this kind of stuff on the range. My gun's not working and they should not be carrying a gun either, okay? It has to be both. You have to pass the written and the shooting to get the license. What John is saying here is that these two things go together. The loving God and loving others go together. They're two sides of the same coin. You don't get to have one without the other. Throughout the book of 1 John, what John has done is he has given us these indicators of true and false Christianity. That's what he's done throughout the letter. And there are three of them. There's a theological indicator, there's a moral indicator, and there is a relational indicator. Here's what I mean by that. To be a Christian, first of all, there is some theology that you have to know and you have to get right. You have to hold to the historic, orthodox, biblical view of Jesus, that he is eternal, that he is the one God, distinct from the Father, but of the same substance, that he is the one God, that he is one person with two distinct natures, that he is fully God and fully man, that he has come down, died for our sins, was resurrected to bring us salvation, which is received only by grace, okay? If somebody is moral, but doesn't know Christ in the historic, biblical, orthodox view, they're not a Christian. The next test John gives us, and that's the one he gives us today, is a moral test. He'll say, okay, let's say you have good theology, but it hasn't impacted your life. It hasn't changed the way that you walk. There's a moral indicator. There are people with good theology and terrible practice, i.e. the Pharisees, okay? I.e. the Pharisees. Their theology is a little shaky in some areas, but on the whole, they don't walk in love. They don't practice the theology they know. And then there is a relational test, which this verse 10 points to as well. The relational test is, do you love others? Do you love other Christians? Do you love the body? Do you love the church? Do you love these things? And you must have all, all three of those are indicators of a heart that's been changed. All three of those are indicators of true Christianity. Now, let me tell you where I have a big fear when it comes to this text. If you just read verses seven through 10 like we've done, it seems to sound like this. If you walk in righteousness, then you belong to God. But if you ever sin or ever struggle, you belong to the devil, the end, Okay. Now, that is not an encouraging thing because all of us struggle with sin. All of us fall into sin daily, many times a day, okay? How many times a day have I not loved God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength just this morning? A lot. So here's my encouragement to you. 
my encouragement is not that you leave this building and you try harder. That would be like this. Imagine for a second that you are a tree and you're a bad tree, the kind of tree that doesn't bear fruit like the Bible would say. That tree doesn't become good by trying to find fruit on the ground and then coming before God and saying, look, God, I'm a good tree. God sees right through that mask. He sees right through that disguise. The way that a good tree bears good fruit is by having life imparted to it. The bad tree has to go before God and say, I'm a bad tree and I cannot make myself good. I cannot produce fruit. Will you please save me? Will you forgive me? Will you uh, give me what I need? And what God does is he brings that tree back to life and all of a sudden it produces good fruit. We've said this a hundred times and we'll keep saying it. You don't grow in holiness by trying to grow in holiness. You grow in holiness by going back to the truth that Christ saves you by grace alone through faith alone. You can't earn it. You can't do a religious ritual to get it. You can't clean yourself up enough. God doesn't demand that you be good. He demands that you be perfect. And because we can't, we need Christ. We need the one who is eternal who takes on flesh and dies for us. That's what we need. That's what we need. My hope is that you don't try to produce more fruit, that you ask God to produce fruit in you, that you repent, that you turn away, that you repent not only of your sin, but also of your righteousness, also of the places where you're relying on you. Because everybody in here is one of three kinds of trees, okay? Let me say it this way. Some of you in here are lost. You don't know Christ. You might even think that you're a Christian, but you're not. Okay? You've not been transformed by Christ. You might have been in church your whole life. You might be a moral person. You might go to church. You might read your Bible. You might pray. That's not what saves you. What saves you is trusting in the sheer mercy of Christ alone, and you cannot do it. You need God's mercy. You need him to have mercy on you. You don't get to contribute. Okay? If you're a bad tree, that's the message for you today. The message for you is come to the one who's righteous because it's not you. Others of you are good trees, meaning you've encountered Christ and you're walking in holiness. My encouragement for you is you're doing great. Keep being faithful. Keep fighting sin, though you fall into it. Keep running to grace, even when you sin. Don't beat yourself up. Don't do like this medieval style self-flagellation thing when you sin where you try to atone for your own sins by showing God how sorry you are. Don't do that. Instead, continue bearing fruit. Continue walking in that. Once you become part of, once you're a branch that becomes part of the vine, you can't do anything, right? The text is gonna say that. Rather, the vine is what feeds you. Once you've been grafted onto Christ, continue walking with Christ. But some of you are this other thing, which is a good tree, but maybe it's not bearing fruit in this season. What's the difference between a dead tree and a dormant tree? A dead tree is dead and it remains dead. It never bears fruit. What about a dormant tree? A dormant tree is one that's still alive, but it's just not bearing fruit in this season. It looks kind of dead from the outside, but we know that it's really alive. And how do you know that it's really alive? Because eventually there's repentance. Eventually it does blossom. Eventually it does bear fruit. So there's not really two ki- or three kinds of trees. There's really two. Some of you are bearing fruit and some of you are dormant. Those are saved people. Others of you are bad trees, non-saved people. But here's the good news for everybody. The good news for everybody is that there is mercy available for you wherever you find yourself in the spectrum. Maybe you're lost, maybe you're saved, maybe you're bearing fruit, maybe you're not. The solution to everyone though is the gospel. Is that there is only one God who's eternally existed as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, each person being fully God. The second person of the Trinity has come down and take on flesh, becoming true humanity while remaining God so that he might live the life we should have lived. Jesus was a good tree. He bore good fruit, okay? 
He walked in righteousness perfectly all the time. And he died on a cross for the places we have sinned, for the places where we need atonement, for the places where we need forgiveness. And he's been raised from the grave showing that he's the, he's the king. He's the king. That he is the eternal son of God. That he is the one who has come to bring us life. How do you join King Jesus? How do you be grafted onto his good tree? Because we're not good trees on our own. It's simply by faith. You can't earn it. You can't do anything. You just receive a free gift. So whether that's for salvation today or that's just for sanctification. Whatever that is, I wanna give us just a minute here in a second to think about that, okay? I wanna give you just a minute wherever you are to sit there in your seat and wrestle with this question. If you're not a Christian, would you become one today? Would you forsake your righteousness? Would you forsake what you've done and just trust in Christ? If you're already a Christian, would you rest? Would you give Christ your sin? Would you spend minutes repenting over these kind of things? My hope is that everyone here is able to walk out with grace. Whether you already have it and need to walk in it more, or you've never had it and this morning is the first time that you're gonna taste of it, that's my hope for us. So let me give you a few minutes to uh, do what you need to do. Why I pray for you and why you pray for yourselves. Let's spend just a minute. I want to have those that are helping serve communion come forward and start getting ready to pass out the elements. Let me pray for us while they do that. Almighty God, we confess that we fall short, that we cannot do what you've asked us to do, that we are broken and hurting and sinful and we need mercy. Would you help us? There are some people in here who see this text and that are walking in unrepentant sin and they say, ah, who cares? This is just a metaphor. We don't really have to walk in righteousness. I pray for them that they'd be deeply convicted, that they would realize that if they don't, there's something broken with their understanding of the gospel. I pray for those who would use this text to condemn themselves. This is the way that my heart always goes, and so forgive me for maybe spending too much time on that. When I read a text like this, I just instantly feel condemned. Those who are born of God don't even have the power to keep sinning, don't even have the ability to keep sinning, Sometimes sinning seems more natural to me than walking in righteousness. So I confess that I need help. We never move beyond needing your grace. So we pray that you would give it as we partake of these elements for communion. We love you and thank you in Christ's name, amen.